Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll hear from an area woman who survived seven overdoses and now shares her story of recovery. We'll chat with MSNBC talk show host Chris Matthews about his new book on Robert F. Kennedy. And we'll check in with NBC newsman Jeff Rawson, whose reporting on surviving unexpected events in life led him to pen a new book, Rawson to the Rescue. A straight-A student who never smoked or drank in high school and graduated with honors from college seems like an unlikely candidate to stand in front of a large audience in Wilkes-Barre and admit she overdosed on drugs seven times and spent a stretch in state prison. The speaker who fits this criteria is a Lackawanna County native named Alexis Johnson. She delivered remarks at the Family Service Association of Northeast PA National Family Conference. We'll hear from her shortly, but first we spoke to Executive Director Mike Zimmerman about this yearly event and why the focus was building a community to conquer opioid addiction. I think just the, the numbers, like 140 deaths in Luzerne County in 2016, uh, the uh, devastating cost to society, not just our community, but across the country that this has, ca- has caused. I know, um, I read a study from, uh, I think it came out of Yale, and they were calculating the cost of opioid addiction, and it was just the uh, criminal justice system, lost work time, and health care. And just those three factors, and of course there are so many other factors that this impacted, and it was about $57 billion a year. And those were based on 2009 numbers, and we all know that this hasn't diminished since 2009. So you're looking at the last decade at probably a half trillion dollars in, in cost to this country. So it's just such a widespread issue. Uh, that's really escalated in Luzerne County and across the country that we just felt, you know, even though there had been numerous conferences locally, we thought we needed to pull some people together who could really give a local perspective on what, what the issues are. How has this impacted your own agency? The only component of our agency that it's impacted is that we do the warm handoff through Helpline and 211. Uh, so we do have calls from people, and the whole idea behind the warm handoff is that if someone is administered a dose of Narcan, they immediately are off a deto- uh, detox, and we can arrange that. We can even authorize payment for it uh, at the time. So we've seen a rise in those calls. 
But I think even on a personal level, Sue, I have a sister-in-law in North Jersey who's a heroin addict, and she is in 18 months recovery, and she's gone through you know, the high usage, the jail time, and to see, of course, Alexis and my sister-in-law recover from that, you know, there's a message of hope, and that's really what we want to focus on, that there is hope out there. The Harrisburg Patriot just did a story about Luzerne County, and they painted it as a pretty grim picture. What can you say from a perspective of hope yourself from someone who lives here? I think one of the messages that we want to give is that, you know, we always hear about the people who don't make it, the 140 deaths that I mentioned, but you don't hear the stories of the people who do. And that's an important thing for people to realize. You know, and we see it in a variety of ways, I guess, through our agency, you know, because and not just the warm handoff, but we have calls from, from grandparents who are raising their grandchildren because their own children have become addicts uh, and the children are placed with them. And just all the difficulties that they go through in trying to make sure that those children receive the services they need, um, that in itself can be pretty devastating. So we do hear you know, from, from family members uh, on the impact. It, because it's not just the addict. I mean, it's the whole family that's impacted by this. Alexis Johnson of Archibald delivered opening night remarks at the Family Service Association of Northeastern PA conference. She spoke to us beforehand about her struggles. I was what you would call a model child. I didn't come from that home where, that broken home where most of these stories start from. I was your typical A, straight A student I didn't touch a drug or a drink all through high school. I graduated a virgin in high school. I was full scholarships to every college. And then that's where I started drinking. I had my first DUI three months after I took my first drink at 18 years old. And everything just started to spiral downhill. I had three DUIs alcohol related by the time I was 27. And I was in a really bad car accident in 2008. My sister passed away from cancer two weeks later, and that's where the Percocet and the Xanax came into play. So I started off with doctor-prescribed medication and led me to shooting 50 bags of heroin a day. What do you, you think triggered this? I mean, you were doing so well, and oftentimes in our minds as parents, we think if we can get our kids through high school and they could reach a certain age and they don't have problems with drugs and alcohol, they're going to be just okay. Your story is counterintuitive to all of that. I had the world at my feet. Um, I had everything. My parents had done everything right. There was nothing, and they had carried a lot of guilt saying, where do we go wrong? And that's what a lot of parents ask, like, we did everything right. What else could we have done? And when I do share my story, there was nothing that they could have done differently. It was my path to go down. I wanted to fit in when I went to college. I was very introverted. I, I didn't really play team sports. I was made fun of a lot growing up. I'm very light skin colored. So I was called albino a lot. And it's just, there was a lot of things that I dealt with growing up that made me want to be alone. So when I got to college, I started to learn how to put on makeup. I joined a sorority. I started partying. I went to frat parties. I started fitting in, so I followed a crowd. Well, following that crowd made me realize it felt really good to do things. But where other people could stop, I couldn't. So where people would go out on a Friday or Saturday, I would continue until Tuesday or Wednesday. And then I started liking the feeling so much, I couldn't stop. So that's where it led into a problem for me. And I come from an alcoholic family where I, I don't want to 
put that out on Front Street, but certain members of my family had addiction issues, and it just wasn't in my nature to learn how to shut that down. So where a lot of people can go out and say, hey, let's have one or two drinks on a Friday, I'd go out and drink a whole bottle of whiskey. Like, I didn't have that, that shutdown mode. So that was a problem for me. I know you talked about uh, prescription pills and uh, that, that kind of situation. Why did you then go to heroin, and how did it escalate so dramatically for you? And how are you still alive, I guess, is my question. 50 bags a day seems quite serious. It's very serious. I went through $70,000 in six months between crack cocaine and heroin. Uh, seven major overdoses, twice I fell at line. To make a very long story short, eventually the Percocet stops working and you require more and more. And at one point I had three separate doctors. I was getting over 600 pills of Percocet a month. Pharmacies back in 2008 and 2009 weren't cross-checking prescriptions. I had pharmacies all over. I was going to hospitals and getting medications when I was running out of pills. Percocet stopped being strong enough, so I graduated OxyContin. OxyContin was really expensive. Then the government came up with this brilliant idea. They were going to change the chemical makeup of OxyContin so you couldn't crush it up and snort it anymore. So then all of the addicts and alcoholics who were snorting OxyContin couldn't do that anymore, so you couldn't get that instant high. So then we were panicked, you know, oh my God, how are we going to get high so fast? And our bodies, we were so sick. And for somebody who hasn't been sick off an opiate wouldn't understand that instant need to get that high heroin when you're only paying $15 a bag and it's instantaneous became that solution so that's how it graduated this part where you flatlined and you were revived what was it's so hard for me to believe that somebody would bring you back to life and you would be alive but you would continue to go towards death do you remember what it was like to be revived from being so close to death? I don't. Um, the first time was in December of 2010. My father found me on the basement floor. The needle was still in my arm. And I spent five days in the hospital, and I went to jail because I was on probation. And I went to a 27-day rehab program, which it was a fantastic program. It just wasn't long enough. It was long enough to dry me out. I went back out, and I went right back to doing what I was doing. I didn't know how to live sober at that point in time. You know, I was so used to being on medication that sobriety to me was not something I could comprehend. The second time, it's a really long story. I, I had overdosed twice in four hours. Again, if you haven't gone through it, it's hard to explain, but there comes a point in your life that you just want to die. And short of actually sticking a gun in your mouth and pulling the trigger, you're almost doing everything you can because you don't know how to function. You don't want to use anymore, but you don't want to live. It's, it's this horrible paradox. You're waking up every moment, and when you open your eyes, you're like, God, not again. Like, I'm alive. I have to go through this again. And your body aches, and it screams. And it all started with a pill. Like, I didn't know what Percocet was when I originally was put on it. And then when like my prescription was running out in the beginning, I was like, why am I feeling like this? Like, I'm achy, I'm sore. And back in 08, there wasn't really too much information on it. So I didn't know what was happening. I just knew when I took it again, I felt better. And then, you know, here I am. <laughs> What's your life like now? I mean, some people probably listening to us right now are in a situation that you were in, and they can't see anything 
but what they're in. What was the thing that, that brought you out of this? And can you speak about how you feel now because you are clean and sober? I share my story so much because people, there's hope. Nobody is too far gone. I had two and a half years of sobriety at one point, and I had to have a hysterectomy. So I relapsed on the painkillers. My doctor at the time knew I was in surgery, but you tell an addict waking up from a hysterectomy, I'm sending you home with Percocet. Again, and I take full responsibility, I took it, you know, and I respected that prescription for three weeks. I, I took it as prescribed, but then the obsession kicked back in, and I knew what to do. I had the tools. I didn't use them. You know, and then I went on my nine month run and ended up shooting 50 bags a day. I went through 70 grand. Everything I had had a good job at that point in time, everything I had worked for, I just let go. And uh, I went on a bad nine month run and I went away to jail and to rehab for 14 months. And I'll never forget the day I was arrested. I said, Thank God this is over. I was thrilled. You know, my father right now is fighting blood cancer, he's 85. My mom's here tonight, she's 76, like they can sleep at night. I'm two and a half years sober. I have a fantastic job for Nissan. I have my own apartment. I can wear my own clothes. I can help people. I wake up every day with gratitude. I can help another person. You know, I don't think about it at all today. And I don't really identify as an addict or an alcoholic. I identify as somebody in recovery and a heroin survivor. You know, I don't I like to smash stigmas because people look at an addict or an alcoholic and they think junkie scumbag or, you know, there's, it's either black or white. Either it's like fantastic, you turned your life around or you deserve to die, you're a junkie scumbag. And, and that mentality, it just, it, people can be vicious or they could be really understanding. And it's all fun and games until it happens to somebody in your family, you know, and sometimes we don't want to see how that person got there. You know, I didn't wake up, walk out of my house, and start shooting heroin. I literally got into a car accident, and it just went downhill. So I, I'm a model. I've been in Vogue magazine. I've been on two covers of magazine. You know, I people look at me, and that's why I share my story. When I tell them I've been to state prison with no felonies, I've been to jail seven times, you know, three DUIs by the time they're like, they don't know what to say. And that's why I'm so open about it. Because I used to be so afraid of what people would think about me. And now I know the only one that can judge me is God. And I'm okay with who I am because it's made me such a strong woman. And I'm okay with that. You know, if it could save somebody else from hell, I don't mind talking about it. I take it one day at a time. And I'm grateful for what I have today because it could be gone tomorrow. Listen as Alexis Johnson of Archbald tells her story of addiction. My name is Alexis and I am a heroin survivor. Not once, but twice. I don't like to say addict or alcoholic anymore because that does raise a stigma. And unfortunately, I think that's what holds a lot of us down today. So you're going to see by some of my pictures that one of the biggest things that I try and shatter, I guess you can say, with what I do in my modeling is to shatter that stigma. And I'll explain some of the pictures as they go through. But I want to tell you a little bit about my story and how I got to where I got. Each day is a miracle. Each day is a miracle. You know, my life is so beautiful. I had one run at recovery. I had two and a half years and I had to have an emergency hysterectomy due to complications. And I relapsed on the painkillers that were administered. Um, Percocet was my original drug of choice. 
after alcohol. I haven't had a drink since July 3rd of 2009. That was the date of my third DUI. The reason I share my story, and I am so open about it, I know sometimes my mom wishes I didn't wear my heart on my sleeve so much because it causes me a lot of pain um, because people can be very, very mean. And I've gotten to a point in my life where I just don't care. Um, the only person I believe in my heart that could judge me is the guy upstairs. And I'll see him when I reach my judgment day. And today I'm happy with the woman I see in the mirror. I share my story because people look at me and I don't look like your typical drug addict. And that played a huge role in my addiction um, because I could go to a doctor in my suits from work and say, oh, my back hurts. Oh, what do you want? You know, or go to the hospital and say, I have a migraine and it's, what do you want? Walk out of there with scripts. You know, there was one point in my addiction, I was working three doctors. I was getting 600 pills of Percocet a month, cross shopping um, a bunch of different pharmacies. This was back in 2009 and 2010. It really wasn't as prevalent as it was now per se. Um, pharmacies didn't cross-check, doctors didn't cross-check. They weren't really as in-depth as it was now. And I was really good at manipulating. Um, really good. <laughs> so I, I grew up with a great, great family. Um, my father was 50 when I was born. My mom was 42. I was a change-of-life baby. I'm the youngest by 17 years. I have five half-sisters and four half-brothers. I excelled in school. I was a straight-A student. I kind of went over and above with everything. If I didn't get perfect marks in school, I would have nervous breakdowns. Um, my father was an alcoholic. He owned a bar. He loved to drink. Um, he doesn't drink anymore, but that's because he's on medication. <laughs> he's currently fighting blood cancer. He's 85. But the beauty of it is that I'm sober to be there for him today. You know, and he fights and he's fighting and the chemotherapy is working today. What I want to share next is going to go out to any parents in this room who have children who are addicts or alcoholics because I want to touch on this subject for you. I'm going to tell you right now, unless you physically put a needle in your child's arm or shoved a beer bottle down your throat, there is nothing you could have done to have changed your child's path. And I'm going to repeat that. There is nothing you could do as a parent to change your child's path. My parents struggled so long, and my father still does. Where did I go wrong as a parent? What did I do wrong? Why, why, why did you turn out like this? I went to college. I joined a sorority. I started drinking. I wanted to fit in. I was made fun of all through school growing up. I had light coloring. Kids called me albino until I learned how to use makeup. It was just not an overly pleasant time for me. And I desperately wanted to fit in, and I didn't. So school and, and other things were my, my outlet. My father spoiled me rotten. Um, I was a spoiled brat growing up, and I admit it. So I gained the sense of entitlement. Alexis Johnson relayed a story of college drinking, which escalated into drug use after surgery and ended in a raging heroin addiction. I overdosed four more times. I, was, I went to the casino and I went to Sheets afterwards in Wilkes-Barre. I had a crack seizure in my car and I woke up to the paramedics and the cops wait, knocking on the door. Now mind you, I'm in a nice car, I'm dressed to the nines, 
Now there's cheese fries all over my car. There's everywhere. Like I'm passed out in front of sheets for four and a half hours right in front of the door. You can't miss me. Finally, somebody called the cops. They knock on my door. I roll down the window. I'm like, yeah. They're like, are you okay? I'm covered in cheese. <laughs> no, I'm not okay. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I must have fell asleep. I work really long hours. They're like, can we see your license and registration? Now, mind you, my center console, I have crack, heroin, paraphernalia, crack pipes. My car is loaded. I, it was a mess. Pull out my license, my registration. I said, I work for, no, I don't. I said, I work for Ford. I was in a Ford. Give them this story. They're like, oh, okay, you have a nice day. Be careful driving home. Went to go meet my heroin dealer after that. Passed out in Walmart's parking lot. Got woken up by four really nice old ladies because the windows were up. This was in July and it was really hot out. So I've had seven major overdoses. My best friend in the world, Rose, my best friend, she was my sponsee, um, just died in July from a heroin overdose. And, um, she's number 12. So if it hasn't been suicide or heroin, I don't know when this is going to end. I don't have an answer. And I, I don't want to be bleak and say I don't know if this generation is beyond help with the drugs that are out there and we should focus on, on the kids. I, I, I don't know. I share my story um, because what ended up saving me, I've been to hell and back. I've had it all. I've been way up here and I've been to the depths of hell. When I went to prison last time, um, I did 14 months in jail and rehab. I spent a year at the Salvation Army in Harrisburg. That saved my life. Salvation Army saves lives. There's no doubt about it. Um, I share my story because when I was in prison, they told me I was beyond hope. My lawyer at the time wanted to send me to SIP, which is State Intermediate Punishment, and I told him to kick rocks. Um, I said I've never had long-term treatment. State prison is not going to help me. I, I did not murder anybody. I did not. I need treatment. I need somebody to help me. He's like, well, I think you belong to state and media punishment. I said, okay, you're fired. <laughs> We're not bad people. Um, none of us are. And society today, I, I believe, and when I'm speaking up here, I'm speaking for me. I have never seen such a cruel world than I see today, especially towards addicts and alcoholics. Alexis Johnson was the opening speaker at the Family Service Association of Northeastern PA National Family Conference, focused on building a community to conquer opioid addiction. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. MSNBC hardball host Chris Matthews is known for his interest in the Kennedy family. He previously penned a book about President John F. Kennedy and now looks at the life of Camelot's middle child, Robert F. Kennedy. The book, 
Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, is a New York Times bestseller. Matthews told us about what he thought RFK could have accomplished if he wasn't gunned down by an assassin in 1968. Our discussion also centered around Matthews' colleague, Matt Lauer, who had been fired from NBC hours earlier. Well, I know pretty well. I got the message, I guess we all did, at uh, 6.49 this morning. 6.49 it moved from Andy Lack to us. It sounds like the decision to fire him was made um, well last night, I guess, um, and it sounds like they've been deliberating on this for 24 hours or so. I'm just trying to interpolate from what I interpret what I've gotten it out of this very short, short message. And obviously, Chris, at some point today, you're going to have to talk about this from your perspective somewhere, right? So yeah. when you hear things like this, are you? Are you in disbelief? Are you shocked? Are you sad? Oh, I'm hard to shock. Uh, I'm hard to shock. Okay. I, I, I know the guy only is really on the air, you know, starting back in the 90s. He is very professional about the way he does the show. He gets up every day and does. He's a great interviewer, and yet people still like him. He's a tough interviewer that people still like, which is a real challenge to be both. Anybody can be likable, but not everybody, but it's easy to be likable, but it's hard to be likable and be a tough interviewer. And he seems to be able to handle the, the lighter stuff and also the deadly serious stuff really well. I don't know. Knowing the way the media covers the media now, we're going to know everything in 24 hours. I mean, this we are really focused on, and certainly at the highest level that he was at. I was just thinking that, you know, I was talking about this with my, my producer yesterday. You know, all the famous names I grew up around, you know, starting with, like, Peter Jennings and uh, Dan Rather and, uh, my God, all of them, and, and Charlie Rose now and uh, Brian Williams, everybody has suffered, a, either passed away or suffered, Tim Russert either passed away or suffered a major career fall in just the last 10 years or so. It's been all over the place. Larry King. It's just been all over the place. I mean, I don't know who's left of the Kings. I can't think of one. You know? Yeah, it, it does put it in perspective. And the Queens, Barbara Waters yeah. retired, but she had about the best run you could ever have. Diane Sawyer retired after a fantastic, clean per- career. Those two women went out uh-huh. on top. But it's getting very hard to go out on top these days. It just this is uh, the scrutiny's brutal. And the people's are they're they're people with their own problems. We didn't we didn't know about. I didn't know all this Charlie Rose thing. Do you know him well, Chris? I knew Charlie Rose pretty well. I like him a lot. I've I've always felt an affection both ways. I I feel I always liked him. He I say like my wife and I. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, charm is one thing, and when you meet people occasionally and they're charming and fun and upbeat, that goes for a lot with friendships. You you don't know what the other darker stuff is. You just I know one thing, men don't talk about this stuff. I've, you never hear about some guy saying, I, I got this woman to do something by forcing her to do something. I mean, I think guys like to think of themselves, most guys, as being attractive and charming and, and winsome. They don't think of themselves as, as bullies when it comes to women. But you know, certainly don't hear people talk about it, so it's almost always a secret what this bad stuff that goes on. When, so. you, read, when you read the stuff about Charlie Rose, and it was, it was pretty detailed, did you like him less after that? Did you think, how could you do this to people? And and certainly um, in, in the media, Chris, you know it's very hard to break into the media. So these women said over and over again, I just wanted the work. I just wanted a chance. I just wanted a job because it is so difficult to get work. Yeah, I know that this, my daughter is just going to be in the, in the workplace next year. Um, I'm thinking um, 
That's a great question. How do you integrate all your feelings towards somebody with what you heard about them secondhand? I mean, heard about them otherwise, which you believe. I think it affects the way you think about people. I mean, look how we how did we put together Bill Clinton in one package? I once talked to D.D. Myers about Bill Clinton, and we all know everything, pretty much everything about Bill Clinton. I mean, you could be a defender, but you still know it all. And um, and she said it's all true. The good, the bad, everything. It's all true. You know, and I think. I think that's true about the people I write about. You know, I think it's all true. It's not like you you got to take it all. And then do you ever – I don't know if you ever really put it down on the table and say, well, let's weigh this against that and let's combine it in, in some sort of formula about the person and say, here's what I think. It's generally you don't like people, you don't like them, and then you learn they did things bad, you, you know those things, but you still like them. I'm not sure likability and friendship. I, mean, I just wrote this book about Bobby Kennedy, right. and he liked Joe McCarthy to the end. He went off to the gravesite for the guy. He he uh, he was uh, so distraught. His daughter Kathleen said he drove around the airport three times when he heard that Joe had drank himself to death. Uh, but he knew he had condemned him. He knew he had learned from the mistakes of McCarthy, but he loved the guy. And uh, and, and I'm not sure love and and moral merit are judged together. I don't think we judge to I think you, you can... Well, fiction's filled with these incredibly attractive... Uh, Long John Silver, these people that are incredibly attractive. Orson Welles and the third band. Awful people that are incredibly magnetic as personalities. That just That's the case and to, of life. To, to get to your book, though, and, and to talk about the Kennedys and the way that, uh, you know, some people have a picture of uh, Jesus Christ and they have a picture of John Kennedy next to each other, there was a lot of adulation for sure for them as, as a family, an institution, Camelot, all that stuff. And yet, as we both know, Chris, they also had some some issues and some secrets. Well, so, it's, it's yeah. not well, Mary Jo Kopechny from up there. Sure. I mean, we all these are facts. And the way that Ted Kennedy handled that thing or didn't handle it at Chappaquiddick was awful. And there's no excuses for it beyond. I mean, there's unbelievable part uh, there and, and and wrongdoing and and Jack's pr- promiscuity was all over the place and the risks he was taking besides the moral misbehavior was unbelievable. We were protected at the time by the fact that the Kennedys were, no matter what anybody says, they were discreet generally compared to today, and they didn't go out having dinner with people like Hollywood people do. They didn't throw in people's faces. But, um, you know, um, the President of the United States is supposed to behave differently. And um, if it had gotten out that he was having an affair with G- Sam Giancana's girlfriend, Judy Campbell, the, the, the Al Capone successor, a hitman, and he's hanging out with the same woman. I don't know what would have happened. I mean, it didn't get out at the time, but it was real. I can tell you that. And Bobby was scared to death of this stuff. He was always trying to get his brother stop hanging around with Sinatra, who was mobbed up, and and, and stop dealing with these people. And uh, but Jack was uh, a daring dude, sort of guy who just wouldn't. He had to have it forced upon him. You know, he had to tell Johnny stop hanging around with Sinatra. And he had to get somebody to go in and warn him about Judy Campbell and ended up took her, Jager, Jager Hoover to get uh, Jack to stop having his, his affair with uh, Judy Campbell. And then, then Jack later was involved with Ellen Romish, who was uh, you know, a German. It was unquestionable what she was up to. And he'd gone out with Inga Binga back in the 40s. And, you know, Inga Binga would, had her picture taken at Herman Goering's Ger- wedding, and she, her picture taken actually with Hitler. And, and and Jagger Hoover was all after that relationship. 
I mean, <laughs> and, you st- and you still look up to Jack Kennedy's one of our greatest presidents. I do. I don't know how we put it together, but you have to intellectually put it together, and morally you deal with it, you know. In terms of uh, Robert Kennedy's place in the family, he's kind of a mid-pack, and and it's a tough place to be because he had, uh, obviously, these uh, individuals to look up to, and and there were some people in this family that were very esteemed. So as the middle of the packer, how did that shape his uh, early life and his career in politics? Well, so you know, you're leading me into exactly what the book's about. I yep. think I think everybody remembers, I mean, Wordsworth, the poet, said, the child is father to the man. In other words, more powerful than our parents are to us are our memories of being a kid. Our memories of being a kid really are our parents. It tells us about life. If you're born short, the short kid in the family, the runt, as Joe Kennedy called his son Bobby, the runt, the five eight kid rather than the six foot brothers, they're the big stars of the family. You're the nobody. In fact, literally the nobody in the family. I call him the Irish kid that wasn't going to get the land. He wasn't going to get anything until he got really tough, became a jock at Harvard, won his letter at Harvard, became his brother's top enforcer for all those ten years or so. He's just the enforcer, the tough guy, the ruthless guy. Only then did Joe Kenny, the father, pay any attention to him. That's the only way he could win the father's love. And it took him a long time to outgrow his father. I think really what changed at the end was Bobby's father had that uh, stroke and couldn't push him around anymore. And Bobby began to be the Bobby he wanted to be from the beginning, which is a pretty sweet young kid who cared about people, who wasn't a ruthless guy. And at the end, the last five years or so, Bobby really was looking out for people like himself who had been overlooked in life. And the, the circumstances of his uh, rise. I mean, we look now at the, the, the Trumps in the White House, obviously, and the family relationships of individuals who are yeah. tied closely to the president. Those family relationships, Chris, was that an acceptable way to govern at the time to actually no. say, here's my brother? It's a terrible and, way to yeah. govern. I mean, nepotism. Well, you know where the word nepotism comes from. I mean, it means the pope has a kid. They called him nephewism, but the joke was they weren't his nephews. They were his kids. And, and nephewism or nepotism is a terrible thing because once you hire a kid— you know, you can't fire him. And the only thing, the only difference between Bobby and, say, Jared Kushner is that Bobby was competent to be one of the great attorney generals of all times, which he was, leading a whole fight for civil rights in the South and guiding his brother through the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything else he did, besides also trying to keep his brother out of trouble with the mob and girlfriends, doing all that. Kushner's probably going to end up getting his father in trouble, father-in-law in trouble. So Bobby was looking out for the president. This president, I think it's going to turn out, we don't know for sure, nobody does. He's looking at, he's worrying about what his kids, you know, Don Jr. said to some Russian, or what deal Jared was cooking up with the Russians. I mean, he shouldn't have to have relatives to worry about. I know most presidents do, like Jimmy Carter had Billy Carter, and Nixon had and his brother, Don Nixon, causing trouble with him. But now they've got relatives right in the White House causing trouble. That's a problem. Well, we'll see how it shakes out, and I think it's too premature to Who talk. knows? Yeah. Who knows? I, I think, I I think President some... Trump will be president for four years, so we'll see. Yeah, and I think some of it is just uh, wishing doesn't make it so, but we'll see, because I don't think we have the goods yet, and we'll wait to see what happens. That's right. But in terms of—let's go back to uh, Robert Kennedy, who you write about in, in your new book, and that's really why you're here today. When you look at— the, the situation where you say he was a, a great attorney general, the enforcer, somebody who was adept and skilled 
at handling a multitude of situations, whether they be personal, professional, governmental. What, what do you think would have happened should he have been elected president of the United States? What do you see as uh, the things that we missed out on because he was killed? Well, first of all, he's recognized as one of the great attorneys general because, I mean, the building is now named after him, uh, the Justice Department building. But I think, you know, the issue of the time in 1968 was the Vietnam War, and he really wanted to end it, and he wanted to have negotiations then uh, involving the uh, the uh, political wing of the uh, Viet Cong and the government in Saigon. He wanted them to get together and form. He didn't say a coalition government, but to try to end the fighting. So he understood that the thing was a stalemate back then. It would end up a stalemate. It wasn't going to change, and that, uh, that the, the Vietnamese were going to stay in that country on the other side from us. They were going to be there when we left. It's just a question of when we do leave. And whenever we left, they would be the powerful forces. Like, they just weren't going to be. So we had to deal with them. And, Bobby, you're going to kill all of them. You can't kill all the Viet Cong. They're a big part of the country. So I think the Vietnam War would have been—we lost—if you get down to the Vietnam Memorial, half the people died after '68. Uh, hopefully, with a, an earlier negotiation that we had, instead of in 72, 73, it would have been in 69. And we would have had probably the same exact deal, which is we get to leave and bring home our POWs. That we wouldn't have gotten much better. We might have gotten even a better deal back then. Who knows? But we would have had to deal our way out of there. Um, what else? I think that the divisions we're in today, uh, the, the, the class divisions, a lot of this stuff, the hard hats versus the long hairs, all that was well underway back in 68, 69. And I think the, uh, the, the, the sort of fight down in America between the, uh, the educated elite, and as I refer to them as their endless Carol King concerts, celebrating themselves, that group is so alienated now from the regular old working-class Democratic Party of Irish, Italians, Polish people. Uh, the, 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 it seems like it always was that way, but it wasn't always that way. That's really grown since the Vietnam War, when the elite uh, turned against the war and the working people, the hard had stuck with it. So I really think if we had ended that war and that, that, that division hadn't occurred, it wouldn't be like it is today. Today there's that vicious division by class that um, and education, I guess, that has caused so much trouble. And I think that wouldn't have been. Bobby's people, as so many people have said, his people were cops and waitresses and firefighters. He was never an elite guy. I remember the first time I heard about him was that when I was a Capitol cop, that he was the guy that the only liberal Democratic senator who always paid attention said hello to the cops when he came in in the morning. And he, he was he was a guy they called his staff people who, who they, he called him, they called him Bob. It was much his friends were these work, people worked with him. He wasn't an aristocrat like Jack at all. And I think that division Bobby would have worked against it. I think it would be more United Country. Look at the people who who uh, saluted him along the train tracks when his body was taken by at the end from New York to Washington. It's all working poor white people saluting him. It's all these pictures of my book. It's it's so powerfully emotional, that, that connection, that gut patriotism that these families felt towards Bobby Kennedy, that's all not in the Democratic Party anymore. It's just gone. It's gone. How do you, and I, I don't like them. I want to be perfectly clear with you. I don't like political dynasties in family. I just don't like it. Um, well, I'm with you. Well, I don't think there's yeah. any reason for them, except that the Kennedys really weren't a dynasty. There was the two brothers, and the, th the third brother well, benefited Ted, from the right? two brothers. Yeah, yeah, but he was never in power, never in politics. Well, he, he was never I, elected anything. He spent a long time in Washington. Did he have no power? Ted? Who, Joe? 
Ten. Yeah, okay, you can call that a dynasty. I don't think, like, everybody runs around saying how Joe, the kid now, the grandson of Bobby, should uh, be a, a, a president. I go, what, are you kidding me? You know, you got to prove yourself. And uh, that's the trouble in Washington today. It's not just the dynasty. It's people are running around saying, well, this person would be a great president. I say, who? Oh, they're so attractive. I go, what? Attractive? Is that how we do it now? So Kamala Harris from California, who's been in office about a month, she's going to be president of the United States. Cory Booker's going to be president. What, are you kidding me? Where's all this? What, what, what have they done? And I and I and I don't ever go by blood. I mean, I don't know why people would want somebody like you just because they're they're related to somebody. But I think Bobby proved himself. And later on, Teddy, much more of a mixed bag, did become a very good senator. I mean, I'm not beating his drum, but he did become a very good senator. And uh, these other, there is a lot of this talk about Joe, and I I'm with you on that. I am. Chris Matthews, the host of Hardball on MSNBC, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. NBC reporter Jeff Rawson covered the September 11th attacks in New York City, earning many accolades for his work during that tragedy. It also led him to consider the topic of being prepared in disasters, in the home, and even financially. We recently spoke to Jeff about his new book, Rawson to the Rescue. Yeah, I mean, for so many years, I covered, you know, regular news. I covered trials and crime and important stories. I covered 9-11. And then I wanted to transition after doing that for several years. How, instead of reporting on what happened, how do we get proactive? And I felt there was a huge gap in this country of somebody fighting for the little guy with everyday problems that we all face, you know, getting ripped off by our contractor. What happens when you get that pop-up on on your computer saying that you have a virus? Is that real or is that just a pop-up ad of somebody trying to get your personal information? You know, how do you survive a flash flood? There was nothing really like that uh, when I looked around the network television landscape. So... I went to my bosses at NBC and I said, I think that there's an opening here for us to really help people with things in their everyday lives, a new sort of investigative unit. And they bought it and they've dedicated amazing resources to it. And we do the Rossman reports on NBC. And then I decided I wanted to write the book because the best thing about television is also maybe the worst thing about television, which is you can reach a ton of people at once. I talk to millions of people every morning. But then it's sort of out, you know, all the tips I give are sort of out there in space. And I wanted to figure out a way to have it so it can just sit on your coffee table. This is like a life for dummy sort of thing. And I think that that does have a great appeal. And oftentimes we are looking for little tidbits to help us along. Um, on the cover of your book, I, I see a, a burning house behind you. And I do want to talk a little bit about something fairly serious, which is house fires. And, and this is, Jeff, the season that we're getting into when you see them more often. Absolutely. And, you know, we tackle a lot in the book about fires, you know, down to let's talk for one moment about fire escape plans. And I know we kind of glaze over when we hear that a little bit. But, you know, most people never, ever even talk to their kids about a fire escape plan, never practice one. And a lot of people say, oh, no, I can get out of my house. I mean, think about it. I get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's pitch black and I feel my way around. So we actually put a family to the test um, in the book. 
and we simulated a fire, you know, with fake smoke and stuff in the middle of the night when they went to sleep, and they knew we were going to do it, and they still couldn't get out in time. All right, let's move on to um, something else, which is you talk about trying to um, find out if a mechanic may or may not be on the up and up with you, um, do I just look him in the eyes or how do I know that this guy is on the up and up that might be my mechanic? How do I ascertain that? Well, there are, look, there are certain tells um, with a mechanic. You know, we've, we've, um, you know we've, we've set up a lot of experiments with mechanics. And look, I mean, my, my advice about mechanics is the same as my advice about contractors and locksmiths. These are the people that know something you don't know, and we take their word for it. So they really have us in the palm of their hands. Talk to your friends today. Whether your car is broken or not today, go talk to your friends and say, who do you use as a mechanic over the years? Who do you like? That way, when something happens, you're not running around in desperation during an emergency making bad decisions at the first mechanic who can take and see you. You have a recommendation. Then program them in, them in your phone as a mechanic. Same with a locksmith. Same with a, a contractor or a plumber. Find out who your friends use and trust and program them in ahead of time. Don't just leave it to dumb luck in a Google search. <laughs> well, it always seems that we're living on the edge here with our lives, and we more often than not don't do that kind of strategic planning, but that does sound like a good idea. Now, right now, as you and I both know, Jeff, the holiday season is upon us, and uh, there are sales, and there are mm-hmm. offers, and there are come-ons. Is this a good time of the year to get good deals? Or, or sometimes, because we don't shop for things all the time, and we don't know how much they cost, are people taking advantage of us during this time of year? Well, first of all, I think it's a great time of year to buy my book, or to the Rescue, <laughs> because it's actually... It's actually a great gift to show somebody that you care about them. Like, hey, I want to save your life and save you money. Um, so go on Amazon and buy that or go to Barnes & Noble or a bookstore. But there are ways to go ask uh, store clerks. I, I'm a big fan of actually going shopping because you can ask them, like, well, what, what was this price last week? There are ways to go online and do price matching. That's the other thing I think everybody should do. In the book, we have some great um, apps for free that you can download uh, where if you go to the biggest stores in the country, the biggest retailers, if you type in like the, you know, the, the um, barcode or, or the kind of outfit it is or whatever you want to buy, the laptop, it will tell you what it's going for at other stores nearby. And most of these stores, if you show them that, will price match it and give you the better price. So that's a way to save money right there on Black Friday. Now, um, in, in all seriousness, uh, you did cover 9-11, and uh, your coverage merited awards for its excellence. So you know a little bit about the city. Uh, this time of year, Jeff, sometimes I think that uh, the shopping season, wherever we live, may be um, somewhat attractive to those who want to do us harm. Talk a little bit maybe about being aware when you're in a big city and you know that it is a target because of just what it is. It's a hub of consumerism and it's the holidays and and so on and so forth. So what should you be looking for when you're in the city or you're in a big mall while you're doing your shopping? It's it's actually a very simple tip. You know, I did a whole hidden camera sting about 
you probably heard the term see something, say something, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And we got a group of people together, and we had a shady guy walk by, drop a backpack near a tree, and keep on walking. And only one person out of this group of, like, 30 said something or even noticed it. So the key is if something catches your attention or your gut, don't assume, like so many of us do, oh, somebody probably called that in. That's probably fine. Call 911. If you actually or grab a police officer if you're in a big city, you know, during these times, they're on almost every corner. Um, grab them, and that is the final line of defense. You know, intelligence will do most of the job, but sometimes there are lone wolves out there, as we've seen in recent weeks and years, uh, where they can plant something. And if you notice something out of the ordinary, that's somebody wearing different kinds of clothes than everybody else. Um, anything out of the ordinary, a, a piece of luggage, a backpack, you need to call that in. That's all of our responsibilities. That's NBC's Jeff Rawson, author of Rawson to the Rescue. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.